it is Palm Sunday, and of course you know what Palm Sunday is, right? It's the day of the week in which the Lord Jesus Christ made his entrance into the city of Jerusalem in order to officially uh, present himself before the leadership of the nation as the messianic king. In fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, it was necessary that Jesus do that. And, of course, you know the results uh, during what is called his Passion Week, how the adoring crowds of Sunday turned into the mob of Friday calling for his crucifixion and saying, give us the murderer Barabbas because they have no king but Caesar. That entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday really set in motion a chain of events that eventuated into the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God raised him from the dead, God granted to him all authority in heaven and on earth. He sits now at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for his people. He dispenses grace from that throne. And someday he is returning as the messianic king to take his rightful place on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And we look forward to the return of Christ. It is coming just as surely as he came the first time. We live, beloved, between the ages. We live between the ages, between that first and that second coming. By virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, as I said, Jesus is Lord of all. Lord of all. And that means he is Lord of work. And that really is what started this entire series. We arrive here at the final message, as Pastor Vince said, part two of what we began last week. Jesus is Lord of all. That means he is Lord of work. And that means that work is a theological issue. It is a spiritual discussion. And unfortunately for I would say virtually all of us that we have to one degree or another drunken deeply of the cultural waters of our time and that we have unbiblical views of work. That is, we have tended to separate our life into the sacred and the secular. And for the most part, work is something we have lumped over into the secular, something you just kind of got to do so that you can do the really good and God-honoring things like sharing the gospel. And we have been working hard to try to help all of us come to a better understanding that every legitimate act of work done well is God-glorifying and soul-satisfying. It is worship. It is indeed worship. So here we are. Are you ready? We are to the final message of this series. And uh, we began last week, and uh, it's unfortunate. It would have been nice if this could have been one single long message, but whatever. The mind can only absorb what the seed can endure. And so um, we had to break it into two. But last week, we began by just noting that there are serious economic struggles in our society. And that there are increasing numbers of people who are finding themselves falling behind economically. We said we could, we could discuss and, and have legitimate differences of opinion about statistics as terms of who 
truly is poor and what is poor and all of that. But nobody can dispute the reality that there are many, many people who are hurting. Nor can I think anyone seriously dispute the reality that our political system, our political economic system, and I'm not talking about any one administration in particular. I'm talking about the American system as we know it and have known it for decades is unable to do anything meaningful to solve the problem. The problem does not find a solution in Washington and it will not find a solution in Washington. And the reason it will not find a solution in Washington is because they are proceeding from an unbiblical um, presupposition about who is man and what is his problem. And so any solutions they bring will be surface only. The answers lie in a, in a, in a, proper understanding of the Word of God and then an earnest attempt under the power of the Spirit of God to apply the truth of His Word to the situations and problems of life. That's where the answer is. We also noted last week that it all poverty is a result of sin. And that was a shocking statement for some people. All poverty is a result of sin. However, not all poverty are not all poor people are poor because of their personal sin. So all poverty is a result of sin, but not all people are poor because of their personal sin, although there is that. Some people are poor or poverty resulting because of various unbiblical social structures, oppressive social structures that impoverish them. And they are sinful. Some people experience poverty because of individual acts of wickedness that are uh, that are they are the recipient of the wicked deeds and actions of other individuals. So from top to bottom, sin always lies at the root of all of our problems, does it not? And certainly it lies at the root of this one as well. Therefore, in seeking a solution, since the problem originates in sin, we need to find a solution that deals with these kinds of problems. The problem of sin. We noted last time that if, if God were to be here on earth and, and to establish a kingdom here on earth, And that kingdom would require a a social and economic system in order to operate. I mean, we say Messiah is coming, amen? And when he comes, he will establish a kingdom and it will have a social economic system associated with it. So if God were to do that, what would it look like? And, And the amazing thing is we can know the answer because God did exactly that. 3,500 years ago, God established a mediatorial kingdom here on earth with his people Israel, and he governed that, that mediatorial kingdom through the Mosaic law, through the Mosaic law. And so what we, what we believe and what we're, what we're advocating here is that by an examination of that law, we can learn something about how God views economics. And we are not advocating in any way the reimposition of a Mosaic law upon any society. We reject that notion as unbiblical. 
But as the New Testament says, these things were written for our understanding and therefore giving ourselves to a proper and detailed and thoughtful examination of the Mosaic Covenant and its associated laws, we can learn eternal principles. And these eternal principles have application today in the 21st century of America. And so that's what we're trying to do. In particular, last week, we looked at seven passages. Seven passages of Scripture. We moved quickly. Someone said, I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose. I understand. I understand. We did move quickly. But we looked at those passages, and and from those passages, we began to to draw together a kind of a composite picture. And And I get to look at your faces as it's going. And so aside from the few sleepers, what I saw was the lights going on in certain people's eyes as they began to think about this. And they began to, in their own mind, I could watch them begin to process what they were reading and hearing. Now, here's here's a fundamental truth that we need to grasp a hold of. God is a compassionate God. Is that true? His name is compassionate. Therefore, and and this is what I want you to to hang on to, God's means of dealing with people is compassionate. Compassionate. We may not understand the compassion aspect of it right away, and to the extent that we don't see it as compassion, it is the, the defect lies with us and not with God. It means we don't yet understand the mind of God in the matter. God is always compassionate in how he deals with his people. And so God, the compassionate God, designed a a series of regulations to order the society in order to meet legitimate human need of the poor while at the same time preserving the human dignity that is inherent in work. That's the big idea. That is the big idea. The compassionate one said we need to care for the downtrodden and we must provide a means for them to work. And to do one without the other is to fail to be compassionate. To fail to be compassionate. Now that is a message that cuts absolutely across the grain of our culture. Absolutely across the grain. But that shouldn't surprise us. Every bit of biblical Christianity cuts absolutely across the grain of a fallen culture, does it not? All right, so here we are this morning. What I want to do is I want to suggest how we can extract some biblical principles from the passages that we looked at last week. I can't go back to them all. I will review a couple. But I want to, I want to suggest how we can draw some biblical principles from those passages and then apply them to our own efforts to care for the poor. How do we care for the poor and do it with the mind of Christ? Do it with the mind of Christ. So here we are. We are principalizing the text. That's a big fancy way of saying that we're going to take what we, what we have learned about what the words mean and we are going to now create principles that transcend time and culture. Universal principles. So what are the principles that we can draw from the Old Testament to help us think about the issue of work and welfare in our own time? What are the principles? And I I want to suggest three. 
I want to boil all that down into three basic principles. So turn in your Bibles first to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read this to to get your mind flowing again. It's something we looked at last week in in some detail. Not going to do that again, but I'm just going to read it. If you follow along, it'll get you thinking. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheave in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. What God commands here is that those who have access to the agricultural wealth are to harvest their crops, but in the harvesting of their crops, they are not to harvest it, as it says in another place, to the corners of their field. They are not to strip their field of every last piece of fruit. Why? Because God, and here it is, here's the principle, God insisted that able-bodied people work for their food because... Work is essential for what it means to be human. God insisted, principle, God insisted that able-bodied people work for their food because work is essential to what it means to be human. Essential to what it means to be human. Think of it this way. Boaz, you remember the story of Boaz and Ruth? Boaz, no doubt could have harvested his fields more efficiently using trained crews. And then given some of what his harvesters gathered to Ruth. That would have been the most economically efficient way to do it. Get the professionals to harvest every last scrap of fruit or grain from the field and then just give her some. He could have done it that way. God could have required it to be done that way. But, but, here we go. The Mosaic Code had in mind the welfare of the person as well as the feeding of the stomach. The Mosaic Code is concerned with the welfare of the person and the feeding of the stomach. If Boaz had merely harvested every bit of grain and then given her something to eat, she would have eaten for the day. But in the process of doing that, she would have been denied something essential to her humanity. And that is the opportunity to work. The opportunity to work. And so God wove it into the system that way. Turn back to your left to uh, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. For our second principle that is of a universal nature. 
Again, I'll just read a few verses to remind you and get your thoughts flowing. Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 35. Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regards to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a soldier that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Second principle. Second principle that transcends time and culture. Here it is. God is concerned, or God was concerned, with to prevent the working poor from falling further and further behind until they ended up in giving up in despair. God was very, very concerned that those working poor were not placed in an economic situation that they could never get out of. And that they just fell further and further and further behind as interest would accumulate on the debts. And there would be no way out for them. So he granted in his law a a whole series of debt relief measures. This is merely one of them, no interest. There was remission of payments in the seventh year. In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, there was actual remission of the entire debt and a return of any property sold. God built these things into the system so that the poor would not be bound in structural poverty. Generation after generation with no hope of escape. Third, God was concerned with the attitude of heart among those who were called to help the poor. God is concerned with the attitude of the hearts of those who are called to help the poor. He desires compassion on the part of his people. He desires generosity on the part of his people. He desires and requires that they love their neighbor as themselves. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. So it is not a hard, uh, inflexible economic system. It is a compassionate, loving, generous, caring system designed to help body and soul. So if you think about these three principles, God insisting that able-bodied people work for their food because work is essential for what it means to be human. That means that any solution to poverty that we might Discuss has to take this principle into mind. We have to consider that reality and we need to we need to approach the problem from that point of view. It is a critical, indispensable element. Care for their stomach and care for their soul through work. Any solution that we bring forward has to has to address the issue of despair. The despair that comes upon people when they see no way out. When it's always the way it's going to be. It was that way for my parents. It's that way for me. It's going to be that way for my children. There is no way out of the hole. That leads to despair. And God would not have that. 
And finally, any solutions we bring forward have to be solutions based in compassion, generosity, love of neighbor. Not hard, inflexible rules. So those are the eternal principles. Those are the eternal principles that that we can draw from the text that we looked at last week. There may be more, but certainly there are not less than those three. Okay? Now, we got the text, its interpretation. We have principles from the text. What would be the next thing to do? You got to apply them. We need to apply them in specific circumstances. And that's what the rest of this sermon is going to be all about. Applying these eternal principles into the day-to-day situations in which we find ourselves. But for those of you who are hoping I'm going to give you this really detailed list, you do this and then you do this and then you do this and then you do this, sorry. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. I'm I'm going to suggest general applications because the Spirit of God resides in you. Did you know that? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, the Spirit of God resides in you. And therefore, the Spirit of God will use His Word to help you think creatively with regard to applying these principles in the specific situations in which you find yourself. So let's start with a question. What is the role of the church as it relates to poverty and social justice? What is the role of the church as it relates to the question of poverty and social justice? This is the topic that is very much on the front burner for many, many evangelicals, particularly the younger generation. Well, in a recent book uh, written, co-authored by uh, a couple of guys, one by the name of Kevin DeYoung and the other by the name of Greg Gilbert, The title of the book is, What is the Mission of the Church? They have done a very good job, I think, of addressing this important question. What is the role of the church with regard to poverty and social justice? Chapter 9, if you're not going to read, well, you you should read the whole book. But chapter 9 is a very important chapter in that book. And in chapter 9, the the authors of the book deal with the responsibilities of both the church as an institution and individual Christians. And, and here's the big thing, this is the price of the book here, they, they correctly note that these two groups, the church institutionally and Christians individually, have overlapping but not identical spheres. They overlap, but they are not identical. Think of it like the, the circles in the Olympic um, logo, right? The circles are not overlapping, are not identical, but they are overlapping. There is common ground between them. So the authors note there is common ground between what the church should do and what individual Christians should do, but they are not identical. They are not identical. The church must preach the gospel. The church must preach the gospel because the church is uniquely created by God to be the guardian of the truth. First, P, or First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth, Paul says. That is uniquely the responsibility of the church. But individuals who make up the church may legitimately choose to become involved in a, in a plethora of social ministries. But they do not individually set the agenda for the church. Do you understand the difference? 
God has put a plethora of opportunities. That means a multitude of opportunities before you as an individual Christian. And you have opportunity and to the extent the Spirit moves in you in these areas, you have responsibility to be involved. However, what you're involved in individually, what's important to you individually, how God is working through you individually in addressing some of these social issues does not set the agenda for the church. It does not set the agenda for the church. They are not identical. They overlap, but they are not identical. So the local church can choose to be involved in various ministries to improve social conditions. But if they do engage that way, they must do so with an eternal truth in mind. That eternal truth is there is something worse than death and there is something better than human flourishing. There is something worse than death. What is it? It is hell. And there is something better than human flourishing. What is it? It is heaven. And the church must never, ever, ever, as an institution, lose sight of that reality. To merely feed someone's stomach without addressing the need of their soul is in the long run to consign them to an eternity in hell. The church must address the soul. It must. As individual believers, you are free to address merely the stomach. The church is never free to address merely the stomach. The only way that that one can escape the fate worse than than death and achieve the, the future better than human flourishing is through the preaching of the cross. Through the preaching of the cross. So, how do we as individuals and churches, or let's say this church, apply the principles regarding God's view of work and poverty as taught in the Mosaic Law? So here's where we start to get a little more specific. First, the church. Let's deal with the church first. Now, as a church, I think... An application of the principle here is that if we engage as a a church, as an institution, in long-term financial care for those who are in financial difficulties, it must be done in a context in which they work for what they receive. It must be done in a context in which they work for what they receive. As our deacons, and I'm, I'm challenging our deacons with regard to this, as our deacons think about caring for the economic needs within this body, there are certainly the, the individual situations that come up where gen- mere generosity and a gift is what is necessary. But if it is a structural problem, if it requires repetitive intervention, then I challenge our deacons to think about how to apply this principle of Work and welfare together. Now, there are some individuals unable to work. There are some individuals in financial need and sometimes significant and ongoing financial need who are unable to work. That may be because of of, uh, illness or it may be because of age and infirmity. That is a possibility. And when that happens, the church must step in to support that individual. But it needs to be done in accordance with what Paul teaches us 
in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so I'm going to turn you to the New Testament. To 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we can hear the words of the Apostle Paul. There is a principle that he lays out here. And we need to capture it. Begins in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, a couple of comments. Historically, and at that time, certainly, widows represent the poorest of the poor. They are those without any uh, viable means to care for themselves unless they were independently wealthy. But generally speaking, to be widowed in that day was to be was to be thrown into a desperate situation. And Paul says the church is to honor. In context here, the honoring has to do with financial honoring. It is to to care for the widows. Not all widows, though. Only widows who are indeed widows. And Paul is going to go on now and and, uh, explain to us what kind of widow that is. There's a subclass of widows called widows indeed. He says, verse 4, But if any widow has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice piety or godliness in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed, definition, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list as a widow indeed, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Now, I'm not going to take the time to unpack all that. Let's just say that her life has been characterized by godliness. Verse 11, But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent uh, dependent widows, she must assist them and the the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Okay, what's the big deal? What's What's the bottom line in this? It is simply this. If a person is in financial need, the first obligation to supply them in their need lies with their family. It is the responsibility of their children. It is the responsibility of their grandchildren. They are to take care of their parents and grandparents financially. If they are unable to do so, or the person uh, who is in need has uh, either unbelieving children who have cut them off, or they uh, do not have uh, children with sufficient means to do that, then that widow can be considered as a ward of the church. 
and the church becomes obligated to take care of her. They become the final line of defense so there would be no poor among you. I'm not going to turn you there for the sake of time, but you can see it in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where there, there are widows in Jerusalem who are receiving what is called the daily distribution. There's some discussion of whether it's food directly or money to, to buy food. That's not all that important. But they are receiving a daily subsistence from the church. But only those who have, who have lived a godly life and have no other means available to them are eligible for the church to take them on to their permanent role and care for their needs. If an individual within the church is unwilling to work, capable of working, is unwilling to work, then Paul has different instructions for us with regard to how to handle that situation. And that's, turn back to the left, the second Thessalonians. Second Thess. Chapter 3. And beginning in verse 6. So, turning there, think with me. Compassion, generosity, love of neighbor lies underneath the requirements for the church to support the poor who cannot care for themselves. The principle of work as being the means and mechanism by which the poor are to be able to care for themselves arises when the person here in Second Thessalonians has the ability to work but refuses to work. Verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special notice of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What is Paul saying? He is saying that by our own example and model, we worked in order to provide for ourselves, even though as apostles we have a right to draw a salary from the church. And therefore, in your context here, Thessalonians, and by the way, the, you know, the Thessalonian letters deal with the return of Christ, and so we're, we think that the, the issue going on here is that, that believers thought Christ was coming at any moment, so they thought, I'm just going to get ready for him to come, and so forget work, that just gets in the way, I'm just going to sit here and pray and sing and wait for Christ to come get me. And by the way, you hardworking people, you can feed me. And Paul says it doesn't work that way. You need to care for yourself. You're capable, you're able, you must work. You must work. And if you refuse to work, you don't get to eat. 
you don't get to eat. It is the application in a specific context of a universal principle derived from the Mosaic law. Because to work is to express what it means, some of what it means to be human. To be human. Now, throughout the whole process, spirit of generosity has to prevail. We see that modeled in uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 29. Acts 11, verse 29. The church at Jerusalem is in famine conditions. They are very much economically pressed. And therefore, other churches who are not as as in such difficult situations as they, as the Jerusalem church, gave to help the Jerusalem church. A spirit of generosity. Verse 29, in the proportion that any of the disciples, these are the disciples in Antioch, Syria, had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. They sent a gift. They took a collection and they sent a gift to the believers in Jerusalem in order to help alleviate their famine. Now, why didn't they make them work for it? Because it was a one-time gift. It was given in a specific circumstance under a certain famine condition. You see the same principle, by the way, uh, when a second collection was taken later uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and following. Church of Jerusalem uh, experienced a number of famines. They were hard-pressed. They were persecuted severely by the Jewish believers around them, and therefore they were, in, uh, they were sort of destitute. And so the Gentile churches understood their responsibility to love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to help with their needs. So Paul here in 2 Corinthians is is taking a a different collection, another collection, to bring famine relief to Jerusalem. This is the one, by the way, when he brings this relief, he gets arrested and he goes into Roman incarceration and ends up, you know, the rest of the book of Acts. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthians here, and this is the important thing. He says, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm coming to get the collection from you. And he says, verse 13, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. What he means is, I'm not taking this collection in order so that you become poor and the people in Jerusalem don't have to work. Okay, that's not the point, is to impoverish you and enrich them. But what I am seeking is a measure of equality, meaning you can't have a a fatness of abundance, say that you love your brother and sister in Christ and see your brother and sister in Christ going hungry. At this present time, your abundance, verse 14, being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. That's a citation when God provided manna to the people. And he said that every single person had enough food, enough manna to support them for the day. So the principle here of generosity, compassion, says that as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot turn a blind eye to other Christians who are starving. We cannot do that. We must help. We must help them. These are corporate church responsibilities. Now let's talk about individual applications. Individual 
applications. This is where it really starts stepping on the toes. Hope you wore your steel-toed work boots to church this morning. Let me start with a basic statement. The American dream is unbiblical. The American dream is unbiblical. The notion that you work hard, accumulate wealth, and then go on vacation for 20 or 30 years is unbiblical. It is not only unbiblical, it is unsustainable. It is unsustainable. Any society that so devalues work that basically has a a portion of their society who doesn't work and gets paid, and then another portion at the back end of life who doesn't work and gets paid. And by the way, with few exceptions, we all are receiving money from the government in one form or fashion. That is not a sustainable economic model because it squishes the people in the middle to continue to work to supply the people at both ends. It will not long survive. It will not long survive. So forget it. Okay? If you, particularly if you're young and you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work hard and, you know, about 55. I'm going to retire and then I'm going I'm to collect seashells for the next 30 years. What a waste of a life. So I want to talk about retirement. So I told you, get your shoes on. I want to talk about retirement as I talk about individuals because retirement and work go very closely together, don't they? All right. The retirement years present a golden opportunity to redeploy ourselves and continue to work. Okay? They are a redeployment opportunity. They are not an opportunity for a cessation of labor. It is not a 20-year vacation. It is an opportunity to redeploy your work, a work designed to love and serve others. That is the the purpose, a biblical purpose for the retirement years. And I can show you that biblically. You didn't think I could do that. Someone says retirement is not in the Bible, but actually it is in the Bible. You might not like what it says, but it is in the Bible. So I will turn you to Numbers chapter 4. At least retirement's in my Bible. Numbers chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their fathers' households. From 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. Take a census of the Levitical tribe, of, of, or the, the family rather, in the Levitical tribe of the family of Kohath among the Levites, that's a better, the right way to say it, of those 30 to 50 years old. Because they have work to do. Now, turn over to uh, chapter 8. And beginning in verse 23. 
Chapter 8 and verse 23. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is just a little, you know, a little bit later. This is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they, are to, and they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. What in the world is he talking about? I thought you entered from 30. Now he says you enter at 25. Further, he says at 50, you're done. You're retired. So what's the deal? All right, let me propose to you a solution. You need to remember that this is an agrarian economy. That means that if you don't plant and harvest and tend flocks and so forth, you don't eat. This is not a, this is not a nine-to-five manufacturing job. At, at 50 years old, the, the work of, of caring for the tabernacle and then later the temple is a very demanding physical job. And a man's body at a certain place in time can, can no longer uh, sustain that kind of hard and heavy physical work. So there is a time for him in which that work ends. But he doesn't end working. Two things happen here for the Levite. Number one, it says they can assist their brothers in the work. And I, I'm convinced that the difference between the 25 years old and the 30 years old is the five years of mentoring that goes on before one is ready to do the Levitical work by themselves. Because you remember that if you mess up in the service of the tabernacle, what happens? Yeah, that's right. You get fired. Some of you, about 2 o'clock this afternoon, will get that. Okay. So there's a, there is a mentoring time. And the older Levites who are retired mentor the younger men for that five-year period of time until at 30 they can enter into the service fully equipped. See, I think that perfectly illustrates the issue of retirement. And that is when you retire, you don't cease activity, but you redeploy your activity. And so here's my suggestions for those of you who are either in retirement or approaching retirement age. It represents an, a, a golden opportunity to mentor a younger generation. You have learned a lot. God has taught you many things. You have a unique opportunity to pass that on to another generation and you need to do that. I won't turn you there, but, but Paul speaks this way in Titus chapter 2. He talks about older women and younger women, right? And, and teaching them to do basic things that have to do with their role, loving their husband, loving their children, being good workers at home. It is a mentoring role. So mentoring opportunities lie before you. Teaching opportunities lie before you. Redeploying yourself that you can teach in school systems. And you might get paid and you might not get paid. But there is a tremendous opportunity to use, to continue to work, to be used for God, and to have significant influence. So you can teach. You can apprentice people. Maybe, maybe you have a certain ability or craft that is, is, that is not widely distributed. And you could, you could help Others learn that task. Again, I'm thinking particularly of the younger generation. Maybe 
their father wasn't able to teach them how to, how to properly uh, you know, rewire a, a lamp or something like that, and, and you know how to do that sort of thing, then, then help these young guys out. All kinds of opportunities. You have opportunity to volunteer in the community. You have an opportunity to volunteer in church. All kinds of places to redeploy your skills. You can run for public office. Heaven knows we need solid, mature Christian men and women involved in public service. This is a great time of life to do that. So there are all kinds of opportunities for you to continue in work, even though the the work that you might have done for a long time is, is something that you're no longer able to do. Redeploy. Just throwing some ideas here. Individually, or maybe in partnership with a few others. You could consider establishing a job training center. Consider establishing a job training center in order to to help economically disadvantaged people develop essential job skills. Essential job skills. How do you do that? I've got some ideas, but I'm sure that you've got many more ideas. Some of you have have formed businesses and, and been successful at it. Use those skills to help others. There are going to be issues of child care. You're going to have to think through creatively, all of this sort of thing. But, but to help people get skills so they can work because they have to work. They have to, they have to be fed, but they have to work too. There's another one. Create self-funding enterprises. That is, various enterprises or businesses that generate sufficient cash flow to care for the needs of the poor within the business itself so that it doesn't continually require infusions of capital from the outside. See, the problem with any kind of government program is it has to have continual money coming in from the outside all the time. Here's an illustration. It's a simple one, but historically, that's what thrift stores were. Thrift stores were were simply a way to generate an internal cash flow in order to provide money to help those who were working in the thrift store and others outside the thrift store. I'm sure you can be more creative than that. That is an old idea. We need new ideas, fresh solutions. There's another one. Consider setting up an interest-free microloan program. I don't know if, you, if you're even aware of the concept of the microloan. It's being used in other parts of the world, and I'm aware of being used in Africa with tremendous success. That is, small amounts of capital lent to somebody interest-free in order to enable them to jumpstart a business. And we're not talking massive amounts of money. I mean, over in Africa, it's a few hundred dollars. But even here, a, a small amount of money could really help someone get started in, in, in learning to work and be able to care for their own needs. Microloans. Listen, limited in all of this is, is, is only your God-given creativity, your persistence in praying, your willingness to partner, your desire to Take the word of God and put shoe leather to it. Make it applicable. The sky's the limit. The sky is the limit. Well, we arrive at the end of this series. I've got six minutes. 
and ten principles. So here we go. Did you ever play a 33 LP at uh, 78? LP? What is he talking about? You know, it was one of those big CDs. They were made of vinyl. You know? All right, here we go. We have them on the screen for you. I'm just going to read them. Uh, Just to summarize all that we've talked about. You ready? Here they are. Number one. The Lordship of Christ applies to all aspects of life including our work. Thus, God has something to say in regard to how we think and act in this important area of life. Number two, when we work as God intends, we glorify him by echoing his creativity and productivity. This is part of what it means to be made in his image. This way of thinking is not merely helpful, but essential in enabling us to understand that there is spiritual significance to every act of work. Third, because of the fall, even while accomplishing many good things, work measured in simply human terms is ultimately vanity because it does not endure. But God grants the capacity to his children to find enjoyment in this fallen world when we acknowledge his sovereignty even over the matters of work. Four, laziness is a sin that abounds in our culture And as a Christian, it is easy to become discouraged by our laziness and want to give up. But rather than quit, we must remember and believe the gospel through which our forgiveness and deliverance comes. Five, when we apply ourselves to our work, expressing our God-given talents and abilities, we are emulating Christ and acting in accordance with the way God created us. This gives God great pleasure, and when God is pleased with us, we can sense that pleasure. Six, the workplace is inherently relational. Generally speaking, we work alongside the same people for extended periods of time, and thus conversations naturally arise. We talk about sports, leisure, activities, families, hobbies, current events, many other things. In this environment, it is perfectly natural to talk about our faith in Christ, which makes up such a big part of our lives. Seven, contrary to most self-help books and seminars, you can't choose to be whatever you want. In God's providence, he has made you in a certain way with specific talents, capacities, and limitations. These things help determine your vocation. Eight. God calls us to our vocation, and one of the purposes of that vocation is to love and serve others. One of the main ways we can do this is through doing our work with a high level of competence. We serve God best when we work with excellence. Nine, there's no such thing as sacred or secular with regard to work. All work is sacred. Thus, legitimate work done well is God-glorifying and soul-satisfying. It is an act of worship. And tenth, to work is what we have been created for and is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Therefore, to deny a person the opportunity to work through coercion or economic incentives is to deny them a portion of their humanity. It is not compassionate. 
to do such a thing. My friends, there's many, many more things we could say to be sure. But those are some of the key points that we have learned together over these last two months. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to every circumstance and situation of life. Or Father, to the extent that we think it doesn't, it is because we are ignorant of it. O Lord, may your spirit be our teacher and our guide. Our Father, there are many, many thoughts rattling around in our heads and our hearts over these last couple of months. I know that to be true, O Lord, because many have spoken to me about it. Our Father, I pray for your spirit to take his word and and to really apply it deep for us and and to apply it individually. We're not looking for, for wide solutions, but Father, we're looking to see how we as individuals can take what we know now and apply it in a way that brings glory to you. We thank you for the resurrected Jesus Christ who who sits at your right hand, Lord of heaven and earth. We desire to serve and please him in all things. Help us in that, in Jesus' name, amen.